Amen. Good morning. It is so good to be with all of you. In case I haven't met any of you in here or any of you out there, my name is Katrina Elliott, and um, I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. Today, we're, as Mel said, we're going to be continuing in our series on the character or the attributes of God. Last week, Crystal started us off by sharing about our Almighty God and how we can serve Him with all of our muchness, as she put it. If you weren't able to be here for that or listen to it, I encourage you to find it on our sermons tab on our website and listen in. This morning, we are looking at God as the Alpha and the Omega. There are multiple places throughout the Bible where God refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, and we will cover a few of them today. But let's start with Revelations chapter 22, verse 13. And this is Jesus speaking. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. It's the beginning. God is the Alpha, the first, the beginning. Genesis 1.1, as Mel read, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I just remembered Mel didn't read that. She read John 1.1, but it's very similar. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before there was anything, God was there. Before the concept of time began, God was there, and he created it all. He spoke, and his word created. God is the Alpha. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's the end. God is the Omega the last, the end. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, says, and this is John describing a vision that he had of the end. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Again, here John is describing a vision that he had of the end of times, where the kingdom of God has come in its fullness. 
no tears, no death, or sadness, or pain. All things have been renewed. It is done. God is the Omega. God started it. God ends it. He instigated and orchestrated the beginning, and he will instigate and orchestrate the end. In the beginning, God created. In the end, God wins. Beginnings and endings, first and last, are important markers in life. We understand and feel their significance. Birth, the beginning of a new life. Death, the end of a life. The first day of school, graduation. The beginning of a new job, retirement. Beginnings and endings are connected. Beginnings inevitably move you towards endings, and endings generally propel you to a new beginning. God used the end of my time on staff here at Riverside to propel me to a new beginning this fall. I have accepted a job teaching math at West Lafayette Junior Senior High, and I'm incredibly excited for this opportunity. I will be hanging out all day with seventh graders who think a lot like me. <laughs> I'll be helping them understand the beauty of math. I'm really looking forward to working with this stellar group of teachers that I got to meet a few weeks ago. And Sophie's coming with me to Westside, so the excitement of being able to be in the same building is overwhelming. But in the midst of the excitement of the new beginning comes mourning the, the losses of the endings of many things, like the loss of a flexible schedule, the ability to be as involved in the boys' school as I have been with chapels and field trips, the ability to drop them off and pick them up every day from school. With an end comes a beginning. And with the beginning comes an end. They're connected and cyclical. I'm sure that many of you experiencing graduation in this season, whether it's you or someone in your family, feel the heights of excitement and the depths of sadness, the beginning of a new adventure and the end of a sweet era. Beginnings and endings are important. But there's more to the story than the beginning and the ending. What about happens in between? As I did with Sophie and Ollie when they were younger, um, I have been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with Trey, our youngest, you know, the one with the ties on. And as I take great delight in torturing my children, they are not allowed to watch the movie until they have read the book. One of my favorite things about watching the movie with the kids after we have read the book is hearing them say, that's not what happened when the plot of the movie veers away from the book, or the ultimate words, the book is way better than the movie. 
Trey and I finished the voyage of the Dawn Treader a few weeks ago, and we finally got around to watching the movie last week. And just as I remembered, it was so different from the book. They got the beginning right. Edmund, Lucy, and Eustace were sucked into Narnia through a painting of a ship at sea. They were on target with the ending. The three children leave Narnia at the, at the edge of the world, where Aslan informed Edmund and Lucy that they would not be returning to Narnia, and gave Eustace the thought that Narnia is probably going to need him again, setting up very well his return in the silver chair. But what happens in the middle is so far off the storyline of the book that it is absolutely unrecognizable. The movie would have been good if we didn't know what was supposed to happen. What actually occurred between Edmund, Lucy, and Eustace entering into Narnia through the painting and leaving Narnia at the edge of the world. What happens in the middle matters just as much. It's just as important and defining to the story as the beginning and the end. The story is much bigger than the start and the finish. What happens in between matters. The thing is, God is the Alpha and the Omega, but he's not just the Alpha and the Omega. He's also the Beta, Gamma, Delta, and Epsilon. The Zeta, Eta, Theta, and Iota. The Kappa, Lambda, Mu, and Nu. The Xi, Omicron, Pi, and Rho. The Sigma, Ta, and Upsilon. The Phi, Chi, and Psi as well. He's the whole thing. He's the whole story. The phrase, the Alpha and the Omega, is a literary device called a merism. A pair of contrasting words used to express totality or completeness, stating the polar opposites to highlight everything in between. Like when I say, I've searched high and low for my keys, I don't mean that I've just searched the ceiling and the floor. I mean I've searched everywhere. Everywhere except for where they are because I can't find them and it's time to go and we're running late. It's a merism. God is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the everything. In light of that context, let's take a deeper look at this characteristic of who God is. Starting back to John chapter 1, which Mel did read earlier. It says, in the beginning was the word. The first words here of this text are reminiscent of the words of Genesis 1-1, the creation account. John is communicating that the word was there at creation. He goes on to say, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life 
was the light of all mankind. Not only was the Word with God in the beginning, He was God. He was the source of creation. He was the source of life and light. John was using a play on words in that culture, in that time, in his poetic prose. The, the Greek word logos is translated to word. In the ancient Greek wor world, the, the word logos carried a lot of philosophical baggage. Ancient Greek philosophers were hyper-focused on discovering the answers to the ultimate questions of reality. They wanted to know the ultimate truth of the universe, the ultimate reality that lies behind all things. Over time, they came to use the term logos to describe this ultimate reality. The logos was that which gave life and meaning to all things. The ancient Greeks thought of this as an impersonal force, and here John was introducing them to it to them as a personal being, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate truth. He existed with God, as God, before anything else existed. All things were created through him. Jesus did not begin at Christmas. He was before the beginning. He is the Alpha. Let's just stop for a moment and let that blow our minds. Because it ought to. God is infinite. He exists outside of time. He existed before there was time. And that is beyond what our finite minds can understand. Jesus is the beginning of the story. But it doesn't stop there. You guys know the story. A little bit further in John chapter 1, in verse 14, it says, The Word, which we know as Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the middle of the story. Jesus is the in-between. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, who already existed, became flesh. He became human in the form of a defenseless baby. He lived a faultless life and sacrificed himself to rescue the world. But Jesus' physical lifespan of 33-ish years was not his only presence to humanity between creation and the end. As Crystal shared last week, sometimes an angel of the Lord appeared to people, and other times the angel of the Lord appeared. Most biblical scholars believe that when the angel of the Lord appeared, it was Jesus. 
the visible expression of an invisible God. There are multiple times in the Old Testament where Jesus showed up. To Hagar, Jesus offered hope. To Jacob, Jesus wrestled with him and blessed him. To Moses, Jesus called him from a burning bush to lead the Israelites to freedom. To Gideon, Jesus called him to defeat the Midianites, as Crystal shared last week with us. These are just a few examples. Jesus is actively in the middle of the story, not only in his stint in the flesh, but throughout all of time to the very end. Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11, says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. It's Jesus. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He goes on to say in verse 19, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with a sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. It's graphic. Jesus wins. Enemy defeated, humanity restored, kingdom realized, the end. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega, and the Kappa Lambda Mu. He is the dawn of creation and the end of times, and he is Wednesday at 1.32 p.m. Jesus is the whole story. He is infinite. He is sovereign. He is orchestrating all things to progress toward the culmination of his kingdom and his great rescue. And he is actively involved in the process. I want to share with you an illustration that helped me understand this whole concept. And I ask that you please hold this analogy loosely because it falls apart pretty quickly if you go any deeper. But consider a comic strip. I'm waiting for the picture to show up in case you can't picture it yourself. Boom! Consider a comic strip. A two-dimensional drawing with rows of boxes that each depict a scene of the story. The two-dimensional characters can only see 
what's in their box and recollect what was in the boxes before. They cannot see or know what is in the next box. The comic strip creator or the cartoonist cannot only see the strip in its entirety from beginning to end, but he wrote the story. He created the characters. He existed before the story was even a concept. He exists outside of the boxes of the strip, but he's also actively involved in what is happening in the story. He can even write himself into the boxes. He started it, and he will eventually end it. The, the 2D characters cannot possibly fully grasp the big picture as the cartoonist can with his perspective and his design, but they can actively participate in bringing about the ending. It's interesting because generally we associate feelings of sadness with endings, but the ending that Jesus is bringing about is the ultimate good the new creation. No more sadness or pain or death or enemies. The kingdom of God in its fullness. It's the ultimate good. And Jesus, the orchestrator and instigator of life, is actively working to bring about that ending. Right now, in the in-between. It's where we live. And we are invited to participate in this continued progression toward God's kingdom in its fullness, toward the complete restoration of all broken things to him. Like the comic strip characters in their 2D world of boxes, it's difficult for us to fathom with our limited, finite perspective, limited by time and dimensions. But when we own our smallness, when we acknowledge God as the Alpha, the Beta Gamma, dot, 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 and the Omega, the everything of the story, when we see Jesus as infinite in his existence, in perspective, in wisdom, and in goodness, it becomes easier for us to trust him as the author and finisher of our faith. It becomes easier for us to participate in the in-between work of bringing about his ending. To obey what he calls us to do, each box of our comic strip, even when we don't understand why or how it will work. To say yes, even when it makes us uncomfortable, even when we are so exhausted and run down from the woes of life that we don't feel we have the energy to and to see each moment of our lives, each choice we make as important to the trajectory of the will and the work of God. Perpetual obedience over and over, big and small, that is active participation in the in-between. Last week was a little bit of a drudgery for my family. In case you haven't heard, Tom is back at Camp Tecumseh for this summer, helping to make summer camp happen in a COVID era. It's going to be great. What that means for our family 
is living at camp for the summer. So we spent the better part of last week moving into a house at, on camp. We're, we're keeping our house in West Lafayette. Um, so as we will live there in the non-summer months, which meant a lot of decision-making about what we will need for the summer versus what we can live without, and a lot of searching for free to very cheap stuff to furnish the things that we need at both places, like beds. Nothing earth-shattering, mostly just mundane. But my mindset went there to the mundane to the finish this and move on to that thinking. The unfortunate thing about that kind of a mindset is that it can easily lead to compartmentalizing life. The task list fits here. The emotions fit here. And my interactions with God fit here. Detaching the significance of my actions from God's will because it's all mundane doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things as I was sitting at the kitchen table in our camp house on Wednesday afternoon preparing for this sermon I looked over at the clock on the oven and had a thought come to my mind what if I saw this moment in time Wednesday at 1.32 p.m. as just as significant to bringing about God's kingdom as any other moment in history? What if I viewed every moment of my life as part of the greater story? That's the mindset of active participation. Generally speaking, we don't know the significance of any given moment until we are able to look back upon it and see fruit. So what if we viewed every moment as significant? Looking for Jesus. Listening for Jesus. Saying yes to Jesus. He is ultimately in control of the coming of his kingdom. But the joy that we get in participating and realizing that coming is a gift. Jesus doesn't demand that we participate in his kingdom work because he can't do it without us. He invites us to participate in his Alpha and Omega story because he is infinitely wise and good and wants to gift us with the joy of living into his will. Active participation requires our perpetual obedience to Jesus. Perpetual obedience requires our constant attention to Jesus. Constant attention requires our diligent discipline. And discipline only comes with practice. Active participation, perpetual obedience, constant attention, diligent discipline. It's a tall order, impossible even. But what about starting to practice? What about choosing a period of time every day, an hour in the morning, or a half an hour before bedtime, 
or five minutes at 1.32 p.m. and practicing paying attention to Jesus. Quiet before him, without an agenda, just listening. What about committing to practice this for 40 days? And see what happens. Because the more that we practice paying attention, the more that we will naturally pay attention in those moments that we don't even know matter. God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is everything. He's the whole story, and he invites you to participate in the joy of bringing about his graphic and happy ending. Let's pray. God, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and everything in between. You are so vast and beyond that we cannot fathom your bigness. You are infinitely wise and good. Help us to see you for who you are, to trust you with the story and to practice paying attention and obeying you in each moment of our lives. Guide and bless our efforts to participate in your story. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 12.2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, the author and perfecter, the alpha and the omega, the whole story. Trust him. Participate in his story even on Wednesday at 1.32. Go in peace.